You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 124. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, everyone, Hello, hello, and welcome back to uh, episode 124 here. This is a continuation of last week's uh, episode on Kusma. And uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about intercompany transfers and some of the assorted things that you absolutely need to be aware of if you're thinking about moving people um, from the United States or Mexico into Canada uh, through an intercompany transfer. I am not alone this week. Uh, I'm so grateful to have Alicia back with me. How you doing, Alicia? I'm doing all right, Mark. It's it's a busy time of year, and um, yeah, I'm glad that we can delve into intercompany transfers because I think when I talk with companies and when I talk with organizations who are looking at bringing people in from the U.S. or from Mexico into Canada, this tends to be one of the go-tos, right? Can we bring this person in to transfer to our Canadian operations? And sometimes they're not aware of one of the cardinal rules under this category, which is making sure that that person is actually a citizen of the US or Mexico, and that they've been working for the company for at least one year. You know, it's interesting when you bring that up. And this is why I'm so grateful to have you here. Because uh, when I was doing the episode last week, one of the things I forgot to mention was um, just an experience that I had when I worked as um, kind of a I guess a Canadian correspondent for a global uh, business immigration firm years ago. And I would get a lot of renewals uh, for existing companies where this company had swallowed up the work of another provider. And so I ended up doing lots of extensions and uh, I was surprised how many extensions I saw for UK nationals who were granted the old NAFTA professional work permit. So the border officers, we didn't have this world of employer (laughs) portal. So officers would sometimes make mistakes and they wouldn't realize, oh, this person is, is a UK national, isn't eligible for NAFTA or the KUSMA program we're talking about right now. So um, yeah, that just brought back that memory. And you can imagine me having to go back to the company and say, well, that two-year work permit that you were originally issued for this individual was actually issued in error and I can't extend it from within Canada. So we're going to have to apply for a labor market impact assessment. So um, often that did, did not go over very well, but I would always tell them, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just anybody, right? You can't just kind of shoehorn your way into an intercompany transfer. It, it can't be any employee that's been working for your company who happens to be a U.S. or Mexican citizen and has been there for a year. It's, it's gotta be really only one of three subcategories of people. Indeed. Yeah. So why don't we start with um, just a quick little overview here for for the the listeners. So what we're going to cover, we're going to kind of follow the same pattern as we did for the professional category uh, last uh, last week's episode. 
And we're going to talk about the requirements. We're going to talk about the documentation that you need when you're trying to, you know, uh, apply for this type of a work permit. And, uh, and then of course, there's a whole bunch of other things that you just need to be aware of, a special circ- uh, such as special circumstances, uh, startups, and uh, wh- what do you do kind of with corporate restructuring? Although we're going to have a separate podcast for the corporate restructuring and name changing and things like that. Um, there's a lot of different nuances with it. So Alicia and I have decided we're going to split that one out and we'll talk a little bit about that unique situation because it, it, it comes up frequently, you know, when you have one company that is, uh, you know, they decide to sell and, and they've got existing foreign workers in Canada. There are different rules uh, under the International Mobility Program compared to the, uh, the you know, the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. So we'll talk about those in, in a later episode. All right. So the three, obviously, requirements, we've already alluded to the first, which is citizenship of the U.S. or Mexico. So Green card holders in the U.S. or permanent residents of Mexico, they are not eligible. It has to be a citizen, uh, similar for all of the CUSMA provisions. And um, the individual needs to be seeking employment in one of three categories. Well, kind of, kind of three, two maybe, executive or senior managerial uh, or one involving specialized knowledge. So why don't you talk a little bit about executives and senior managers, Alicia? Mm-hmm. And so take a look at the program guidance on this. And and one thing that I do want to preface also is that it's helpful to look at the policy guidance, not only for CUSMA, which is, of course, under your international treaty provisions under Regulation 204, but there's some program guidance that in general pertains to intercompany transfers that you will find under the Regulation 205 sub A. And you know, it's kind of funny, Mark, when I was teaching a course um, on work permits, I would always go back to the regulations. And really, when you look at, so of course, CUSMA, the Canada-US-Mexico Free Trade Agreement is under an international agreement, which is encapsulated under the authority of Regulation 204. But when you also look at the 205 provisions and 205A is for Canadian interests, and all it says is a work permit may be issued under Section 200 to a foreign national who intends to perform work that, and sub A says, would create or maintain significant social, cultural, or economic benefits or opportunities for Canadian citizens or permanent residents. And so not only do you have provisions that talk about intercompany transfers under CUSMA, CUSMA, you also have the general provisions. And this is where immigration and the department has provided policy guidance to officers to say, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about managers, executive and functional managers? Do they qualify? Um, What do you need to have there? And so cross-referencing both of those things, if you're looking at Kuzma specifically, but also going ahead and taking a look at the 205 provisions really kind of fleshes out what they're getting at when we're looking at executive or managerial level work. And I'm sure the border officers have seen all sorts of variations on this. Um, It you know, it's got to pass the logic test. So if you have a very small company, then you know, maybe you do have an executive and there's only a group of about 20 people in that company. But if you're looking at a very large organization and you're trying to say everybody is an executive, you're going to have a problem, right? So it generally has to be kind of that C-suite tier of executives. I always like to understand the company and know for sure 
at least have an idea of what their organizational chart looks like. And it's always a matter of a little bit of strategy of whether you're going to provide that org chart or not. Some of the applications you might have to do so, but understanding who really is reporting to whom and who has a direct report in terms of personnel and who actually is in charge of a department, but maybe not any people underneath them. Yeah. And one of the things that they point out specifically, um, you know, when we think about senior managers, we think of individuals that are higher up on that food chain. And so one of the discussions we often have with our companies and, and is, okay, well, who does this person report to? And, and then who do they report to after that? And how many people are underneath them? And those are real factors that can help an officer if it's, and, and mo a lot of these, because they're coming from Mexico or, or uh, the United States, we, we do these at the ports of entry and uh, we prepare, prepare the packages um, for the individuals and it's a lot more streamlined. And so officers are looking for certain things. And uh, at times when individuals are not actually managing other people, um, officers can kind of have issues with that. But fortunately, built into the program delivery instructions is, a, is an acknowledgement that an individual can fully qualify and be a functional manager, which essentially manages an essential function within the company. So as, as counsel or, or as global mobility managers, um, your job is to clearly establish that what they are managing is essential to the functioning of the company. And uh, every company is different. And this is where, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to managers that are in that position. But, uh, but yeah, the C-suite level executives and the senior managers, it's really, really important to realize that they really need to be higher up on the food chain. And uh, it reminds me of one experience, um, well, just a consult I had just a couple days ago. I was talking with someone who worked for, I don't know, was one of the f pizza franchises. And uh, he, he said that he was, a, he was a food service supervisor. And I said, okay, um, well, who do you supervise? And he said, well, we're all food service supervisors in the company, like all of the, <laughs> all of the employees. And of course they were all foreign nationals. I don't think the business even employed, uh, like, I'm not sure to what extent they had Canadians or, or, or permanent residents. Obviously they would have had to have some, but, but all everybody, all of his buddies were, were all food service supervisors as well. And, uh, I thought to myself, I wonder if they've fully disclosed that in the context of these LMIA applications, because you know, it's kind of hard to be a supervisor if you're not supervising anyone. So keep that in mind, right? Yeah. So, so keep in mind for Kuzma, you know, now we're into the LMIA exempt world. And in order to be able to prove to an officer at the port of entry that you do qualify for that LMIA exemption, you've got to prove an executive capacity. And, and some of the indicia they're looking for is, you know, directing management of the organization or a major component or function of that, um, having goals and policies of the organization that they get to shape, exercising latitude and discretionary decision-making, um, and basically they only receive general supervision from higher powers within the corporate structure. So making sure that that person is an actual executive is very important. And just like you said, Mark, for managerial capacity, normally that's going to be managing people or groups of people. Um, but sometimes if you're careful, it could be a functional manager. It's got to be an essential function for the organization. Um, making sure you're supervising and controlling the work of other managers or professionals is important. And usually having the authority to hire and fire. So that's a big one. Yeah. And one, uh, one tip we'll give you guys is 
if you have an individual that is a manager, but you're just not sure if they're senior enough to, to fly, well, then you need to look at category three, which is specialized knowledge. And at times that's the route we've gone because an individual does have specialized knowledge, which, you know, we could spend a whole podcast talking about that. We'd encourage you to go to the actual program delivery instructions and, uh, and take a look at those. But essentially the main things that the officers are looking at is that there is both proprietary knowledge and advanced expertise that are interrelated with this specialized knowledge that, uh, that you're, you know, describing. It's something that's idiosyncratic to the company. It's something that is, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a patent, but that, that, that doesn't hurt. You know, if there's some proprietary technology or, or something along those lines that's actually been patented and, and that's just completely different in the industry, then, then that helps a lot. But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, as far as specialized knowledge goes, um, that, and with the whole intercompany transfer world, uh, you know, individuals that don't, well, they don't even necessarily need to have education to, to, to fall into this category. And so whenever you have a situation where individuals without degrees or, or post-secondary education are, are being described as, as, you know, specialized knowledge, there's going to be a higher degree of scrutiny. And so this has been, um, you know, examined carefully by immigration, by the partner countries, and they've got some pretty clear set of, uh, uh, you know, guidelines to help with officers determining specialized knowledge. So you definitely want to take a look at that. Any other tips on the specialized knowledge side, Alicia, before we move on? Yeah, and I, I spend a lot of time on the specialized knowledge because I kind of feel like it's almost like scientific technologists or technicians under the professional category. I feel like everybody tries to wedge their way into this category because it has the most room for broad interpretation, um, but you've got to really be able to back that up. And so when I do my submissions on specialized knowledge, I really break it down into making sure that I'm proving that that person has both proprietary knowledge, something that is you know, unique and covered by that company's intellectual property and advanced expertise. And those are two separate requirements. So making sure that you're proving proprietary knowledge and advanced expertise. And then if you look at the program guidance, it, it goes into more details about what each of those things can mean. Um, you touched on uncommon knowledge, Mark, right? Like it's, it's advanced, not everybody in the company has that sort of knowledge. It has to be usually significant. So they have to have at least, uh, you know, one year, of course, is the minimum for intercompany transfer, but usually more than that, if you're trying to make a specialized knowledge argument, and it has to be recent. So, and we'll, we'll get to this in a minute about, you know, how long do you have to have that one year of work experience within the application period, right? And that's really important. But when you're looking at specialized knowledge, make sure that they can prove those skills within at least kind of the last five year window of time. So be careful with this. The onus is always on the applicant to prove it. I always make sure to tell my clients when I am talking to the corporation, but also to the employee, you know, make sure that that employee can speak knowledgeably about what they do in terms of the nitty gritty yes. details of why they are an expert. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen individuals with phenomenally prepared packages um, that fully describes all of the, the specialized knowledge that the individual has, the, you know, the proprietary technology. And then the individual gets to the port of entry and says, oh, I don't know, I just do this, right? And so you must absolutely prepare those individuals. Okay, and the reason we've spent so much time talking about this, uh, 
you know, uh, during, during this, this podcast, this episode, uh, the positions is because if they don't fit into one of these categories, they're not an intercompany transferee. And so you have to make sure that it fits. So citizenship, the, the proper executive managerial capacity or, or specialized knowledge. And then the next is transferring to an enterprise that has a qualifying relationship with the enterprise in which he or she is currently employed. So that's what it says. Now, um, essentially what they're getting at is that there is, um, uh, that there's uh, either a branch, you know, a subsidiary or affiliate enterprise, and that you can clearly establish that corporate relationship. And so Alicia, what do you typically include? Well, and we'll talk about documentation, but um, you know, wh- what do you see in terms of traditional uh, examples of these types of qualifying relationships? Yeah, and, and it's actually funny, Mark, because sometimes if the company hasn't done an ICT in the past, they just assume that some, you know, corporate structure exists. And then I say, okay, well, can you show me your, your, you know, your share ownership structure? Can you show me which corporation owns which and what the percentage of ownership is? And sometimes when they unearth those documents, they realize, uh-oh, it's actually owned by, you know, this holding corporation. And I didn't even realize that, right? And so it's very important to make sure that there's a parent branch subsidiary or affiliate relationship. And you actually can prove, well, who owns the shares? What is the structure of this corporation in relationship to the Canadian operations? And sometimes it's going to be corporate documentation. Sometimes it's it's going to be those organizational charts. Sometimes you're going to have director's resolutions or something else that you need to be able to prove that relationship. Um, But you do need to prove that relationship. Indeed. And then the other factor is continuous employment in a similar position outside Canada. So um, for at least one year um, in the previous three years. And there's been a lot of evolution with intercompany transfers and how they define this. And, uh, you know, the, uh, over the last few years, um, we've seen that more and more they want to ensure that the individual is currently employed by the foreign entity before they can be transferred. But technically speaking, if you read the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the policy, uh, instructions one year in the previous three years suggests that if the person was employed, you know, two years ago, but they had one year that that would be enough and you could transfer that. But more like, you know, more recently we've, we've seen that, uh, and I shouldn't say more recently, it's been this way for, for some time. They have uh, wanted to insist that the person is actually being transferred. And, you know, the, the expectation is that the person has the ability to be transferred back to their position. And if they aren't currently employed, how can it be a transfer? So we'll leave that for another day. But generally speaking, um, you know, the individual will have been employed by and is currently employed by the, the entity before the transfer. And uh, the, the one issue that we see sometimes as well is companies wanting to promote and then transfer. And so when the, the you know, the policies uh, indicates that it needs to be a similar position outside Canada, they mean it. And, you know, we, we can go by knock codes. That's a factor. So if you can identify that the person's position is not changing knock codes, you can make a, a good case for it. But, but what have you seen with this, Alicia? Yeah, I I always caution companies if they're trying to promote and transfer, because it does say that it has to be a similar position, that they've had to have worked a similar position in the US or in Mexico for that year. And so it is much safer to transfer that person, not to promote them and then transfer them. Um, But do take a look at the NOT codes, make sure that 
you're not only looking at, and this is something we do with Express Entry all the time, you're not only looking at those bullet points. Everybody forgets the lead statement and the activities of the main opening paragraph. So make sure that you can show that it's falling within both those things when you're looking at the knock and bringing them over. So I would say make sure that you have that transfer and that you can prove their job duties are very similar to what they were in the US or the Mexican operations as to what they will be in this legitimate and continuing establishment of the Canadian company. Exactly. All right, so we've kind of covered the requirements now. Let's jump into the documentation. Like we said, generally speaking, with these types of uh, work permits under Kusuma, we, we do them at the ports of entry. And so the packages are not full uh, or completely full of, uh, uh, you know, forms and other things that you have to normally include when you're filing online. These tend to be um, really supported by a letter. And the, the policy manuals describe them as letters of introduction. We call them employer letters. And, uh, you know, Alicia, when I first started doing this, I used to put a lot in my submission letter, my little cover letter saying, this is what the person's doing. And we still do this, but I would include a lot more details in it. And then, you know, having worked on the border, I realized um, that my fellow colleagues really weren't looking at those at all. So um, they just flipped past my cover letter where I might have had some important information in it. So now we load everything into that employer letter. And... Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, if we go through the documentation, you're gonna they're gonna have their passports with them, which will prove their citizenship, and uh, and then proof that they're currently employed by the enterprise outside of Canada. You know the the W twos in the U S are a classic example of this, but even built within the letter, you know the company can say the person has been employed, and and uh, and and they're gonna break down all of the details of the transfer within that letter. But but we tend to include that as kind of proof. Now, you know similar tax documents. Um, uh, in, uh, in, in Mexico would, would work as well. Um, but that's kind of what we focus pay on. Mm -hmm. Pay slips. Exactly. And, uh, we also include CVs or resumes, uh, as well mm -hmm. as another piece of just to show their experience and, uh, employment history. I, I would say on the resumes, be very careful to vet those resumes. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I often have the employee send me those resumes and, I would say nine times out of 10, there's problems or internal discrepancies with those resumes, or sometimes they haven't updated their current role or their job titles don't make sense. So be very careful to vet those resumes, go back to the employer itself and go back to the employee and make sure that everything that's on that resume is accurate, complete and correct, and that it all jives with the not code and it jives with the corporate relationship in terms of who is actually paying them. So that's another thing is um, just make sure that who is on the payroll for those W-2s is meshing with who you think ought to be the employer of record. Absolutely. Well, let's take a little break here and we'll just hear from our sponsor. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing! Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.jooorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code 
Holthe Journey 10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. And the next step that uh, is critical to cover is that the individual is employed continuously outside Canada by that enterprise for at least one year full-time within the three-year period immediately preceding that initial date of the application. And so um, so where do we see problems sometimes with this, Alicia? Yeah, so sometimes people say, well, wait a minute, they were in that position previously and maybe they changed their positions within U.S. operations and now they want to get transferred to Canada and they want to go back to that position. So technically, they're not currently employed. They're not currently being transferred from exactly the same or a very similar job title and job duties to what they will be doing in Canada. And some people try to argue, well, let's say we, you know, fired that person or they came back to our employment, but it was within the three-year period. Is that okay? Yeah. You know, there, there was a time where <clears throat> the individual could, and if you read the regulations, it says one year within the previous three years. So it doesn't necessarily state clearly that the person has to be currently employed. So in other words, if someone did work for you for a year, um, you know, maybe a year and a half ago, they're still within that three-year window and then you want to, you know, they want to rejoin the company and then transfer. Well, there was a time when we didn't actually need to show that they were currently employed by the company. They could just be hired and put on the, you know, uh, we prepare the package, they get the work permit, and then they just are put on the payroll of the Canadian entity. But there was a shift a number of years back where they said, no, how can it be a transfer unless they're actually working for the entity that's doing, you know, the transferring? So as far as documentation, then what would we include to prove this in our in our package, Alicia. Mm -hmm. And so this is where, you know, the best would be if you can get a letter from the employer that clearly outlines the position that the person is occupying in in US or Mexico, um, job title, job duties. And Mark, you and I, because we're always in the express entry world, we always want to make sure that they do a good job upfront of aligning that job title and job duties with the National Occupation Classification Code. Almost always the companies forget the lead statement, right? They forget those main activities in addition to the majority of those bullet pointed required main duties of the job. So make sure that that's in the letter. Um, Clearly outline what the what the terms are, right? So full-time, what the hours are, days off, benefits, wage, whether it's annual or um, on an hourly basis, usually it's going to be annual. And make sure that you also provide proof that that person has been continuously employed either in the U.S. or Mexico. So W-2s if, if they've been mm-hmm. employed in the U.S., um, payroll documents if you don't have tax documents. But hopefully you can definitely prove that that money has been paid to that employee and it's in line with what you would expect to be seeing in terms of salary. You bet. So just to recap for everyone again, <clears throat> excuse me, we have uh, initially proving the citizenship. And then after that, we are confirming that the individual is currently employed by that entity outside of Canada and has been doing that continuously for at least a year. So we have all of our resumes and payroll uh, records and things like that. Um, But one of the most important parts, Alicia, of this whole process 
is the letter from the employer. And this really is the foundation of the whole application because often these intercompany transfers from Mexico and the US, individuals can apply right at the port of entry like we've discussed before. So these, these letters of support from employers are really super, super important. So what are some of the high points that you want to absolutely cover when you're, uh, mm-hmm. when you're preparing that? Mm-hmm. So making sure that you're literally breaking it down. And so when I, and I draft these letters for the employers, right, I, I make sure that it's going to have all the necessary elements in it. And so currently employed, um, and it does say that in the program guidelines, right? It says currently employed. So currently employed, multinational company seeking entry, parent, subsidiary, branch, or affiliate. So the first thing is describe that corporate relationship, right? How is, you know, Corporation Canada related to Corporation USA or Corporation Mexico actually provide details on how that works in terms of ownership structure. Then you're going to say, all right, here's the, they're transferring. It's got a legitimate and continuing establishment in Canada. The role itself is going to be executive, senior managerial, or specialized knowledge. And don't just leave it at that, right? We talked about what specialized knowledge means. We talked about what senior managerial means. So dig into that a little bit, have subheadings about why it's going to be specialized knowledge, and then prove the payroll documentation. Make sure that you are outlining everything in a very logical fashion and clear headings and and bullets, and then have that supporting documentation backing it up. Exactly. You know, when I think of all of the years and how my process has evolved, and I talked a little bit about this earlier, um, there was a time when I put a lot in my submission letter. I, you know, summarize everything and put it in a nice little package and, and had this nice little cover letter, this submission letter, as well as the employer letter. And the employer letter didn't talk about the particular categories of immigration, you know, which, you know, uh, confirmation exemption code, things like that. I built that, I built that into my letter. Until I started to realize that the officers really, for the most part, didn't uh, look at what I was putting in there. <laughs> and so now that, uh, you know, now for sure, my, my companies are uh, unbelievably knowledgeable about the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act and regulations and the provisions and, and the, yeah, the confirm, confirmation exemption codes. And sometimes they'll make legal arguments too. So, you know, you, you do everything that you can to keep the package as, as concise as possible. But at the same time, anytime I've had a negative experience with any officer, I then take that, what I learned from that experience and add it if possible to the package, unless what the officer was asking for was just unreasonable, you know, like original wet ink copies of of contracts and things like that. Um, And so I will be honest over time that the package has enlarged and became a little bit more fulsome than it used to be in the early days when I started practice. So... Yeah, these, these letters yeah. are super important. The, the letter from the employer is super important. And one thing that I also find that people fail to appreciate that I emphasize with the employee who's transferring as well as the employer is that technically this is still a temporary residence application. And so build in some form of temporary intent into the letter. Talk about the duration. Talk about why that individual is required for only three years, let's say, um, and have something. And I know some of these are executives and it feels silly to be providing proof that they own a house in the US, but technically there should be something to hang your hat on that if the officer says, well, you know, are you coming on a permanent basis? Make sure that you've talked to that employee and that they understand that it is still a temporary residence application. Exactly. And one other pro tip I guess I'll share is if, 
if you're acting for a large global company and you know they have uh, you know gross annual revenues of a billion dollars then put that in the summary for the company and uh, i have noticed absolutely on the borders that if you have a little a little mom and pop shop where there's one person remaining in the home country while the principal owner transfers to canada they're going to treat that different than an executive who's moving from a billion dollar company from one subsidiary to another and i've also found that the evidence that you need to prove that you know the corporate relationship things like that often is is a, a less burdensome when you've got a publicly traded company and all of the information is all available on a website or it's a recognizable company that the officer would have known um, i tend to find that they they are a little bit softer in those circumstances so if you've got a small company it's unknown um, you know and there's uh you know the the revenues are not as super high you actually have to work harder for those than you do for the larger entities and yeah and that brings up a good point too mark because sometimes companies are trying to say well hey, I want to establish a business in Canada. And so what happens when you're trying to bring somebody on a Kuzma professional when there isn't really a robust operation in Canada already? Exactly. And, you know, as we shift, we'll just shift now just to a couple of things. And I want to talk, this is kind of our miscellaneous section. So, you know, other things to be aware of. And absolutely, Alicia, like you indicated, it must be an you know, it must be established, um, that the business is or will be doing business in both Canada and the person's home country. And sometimes when you have smaller entities, they say, well, you're the whole purpose of the business. Like you are the sole kind of manager. You're the one who drives the ship. And so if you come to Canada, well, what becomes of that entity that you're leaving behind? And, and in, in some instances, when individuals are parachuting into Canada, sometimes companies will try to just set up the very, very bare minimum. Maybe they'll set up a Regis office or something like that. Um, you know, they don't really have a physical presence and then they'll transfer someone into Canada. And then the question is, because all the contracts are still with the U S entity, is this Canadian entity that you're being transferred to? Is it, is it really, you know, doing business? So these are some of the things definitely that you want to, uh, to watch out for. And on that note, um, let's touch briefly on startups because sometimes we get companies who have got opportunities in Canada and they're trying to figure out, hmm, is it worth it for us to set up an entity or, you know, continue to use whatever other possibilities we have to do work, but we're getting more and more and it's becoming, you know, a reality that we're probably going to need to move forward with this. So um, what are some of your thoughts in terms of, you know, general requirements for companies that are looking to do an intercompany transfer when it's just to start up a new entity in Canada? Mm -hmm. And this is where going back to where we started at the beginning is important because we're looking at CUSMA professionals under specifically the free trade agreement, but we're also looking at the general ICT provisions used to be old C12. Now it's under C61, but we're still looking at regulation 205A also. So that's important to, to point out as well. So go take a look at the program delivery instructions. But it is possible to try to make an ICT argument under 205A, so not under the international free trade, but under the general provisions. But you really need to make sure that that Canadian, the new company in Canada is going to have physical press premises. I, a lot of companies, especially now that so many things are digital, so many things are online, they really don't want to have to spend the extra expense to have a lease, to have a physical premise, if they're not really going to be doing business at that physical 
location. They really are transacting everything virtually. But regardless, you know, these regs and these policies are, are tied to an era that was more bricks and mortar. And so it's important to say, look at for business legitimacy purposes, you've got to have a physical premise, go get that business license. And that's one thing that's really important to tie that startup to Canada. Exactly. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, this is one of the situations where I'll actually point out the value of our um, our sponsor, Journey Business Plans. Um, in the context of a startup, they want to see that you have realistic plans to do whatever you're, you say that you're going to be doing. And, um, you know, th this is one of the roles I find for companies that, you know, that come to us and say, well, you know, how do we demonstrate this? Well, one of the best ways is to have a business plan that shows exactly what your intention is. You know, um, you know, the, the realistic plans to actually staff this new operation, that's one of the really, really important aspects of it. And that the company has the financial ability to actually set up this company and, and, uh, and get things moving, you know, that the parent company or the company for, for which the individual is being transferred actually has uh, the financial wherewithal to be able to do this. And, and a well-prepared and uh, planned, you know, put together business plan can help an officer to understand how it's all going to play out. And in fairness, Alicia, they, they tend to be a little bit more kind with these, but we'll talk about duration of issuance of that work permit in, in a second. But in terms of the, the actual transferees themselves, you know, what are they, what are they focusing on with the individuals in this context? Mm -hmm. Well, it's got to make sense, right? So follow the money. Does the new Canadian corporation have the ability to make payroll, right? How are these people going to get paid? And if you're bringing over a senior manager, that's going to be different than if you're bringing over a specialized knowledge worker. But if there's nobody to manage them yet in Canada, you've got to think about who's going to come first. And then how are those people going to get paid? And then how are the foreign operations still going to be continuing to operate in the interim? You know, I'll give you a quick example here as our time is, is quickly running out. Um, I had a company who wanted to come and do an intercompany transfer. They wanted to transfer, one, it was a family held business, but it did over a million dollars. And uh, they wanted to transfer one of the key, uh, key family members to Canada. <clears throat> and uh, they'd done a lot of work. They'd gone to the, you know, they traveled, done exploratory visits to Ontario. They had, you know, made their connections with the, the local business um, uh, networking and, and incubator um, associations and everything was really good we had a great business plan but they didn't want to pay or guarantee to pay this person what the prevailing wage would have been I think they wanted to just pay him forty thousand dollars or something for this senior managerial role and I advised them strongly against it um, and I said look it needs to be over a hundred thousand and they said well we can't you know, we can't guarantee this. This is a new startup. And I said, well, understand if you do this, you're running the risk that it could get rejected. And that's exactly what happened. And so the officer said that we don't believe this is a real genuine position as a senior executive if you're only making $40,000 Canadian a year. So you have to be very, very careful with that. Very careful. Yeah. So what about uh, yeah, durations? So oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, pass the logic test, right? If it doesn't make sense, then it's probably not going to make sense to an officer. So uh, take a look at it. And because officers are going to be more suspicious, they are not going to give you a right off the bat three-year term. They're going to say, if it's a startup, 
it's only going to be an initial work permit of one year and you've got to prove if you're going to do a renewal that you actually did what you said you were going to do that the canadian and foreign companies still have a qualifying relationship the new office has you know actually had provision of goods or services that they were doing business and that the new office has actually been staffed yeah exactly and like i said they tend to be a little bit kinder with issuing that first one year but then the rubber hits the road when you're ready to do a renewal and there's a far far greater detail or i should say degree of scrutiny when you're doing that renewal if it's from within canada than a port of entry officer at you know the airport in toronto for example so be aware of that and uh yeah and then i know one of the things that we haven't talked about alicia is the whole world of corporate restructuring and you know the impact that it can have on intercompany transfer uh work permits and We'll cover this in a future podcast, but I think for the most part, this is a, a good overview of intercompany transfers. And uh, um, I know one of the things that uh, is we have not yet covered with Kusuma is treaty um, traders and investors. So we'll we'll do that in the next podcast, and uh, we'll wrap it up from here. Thanks so much, Alicia. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian immigration.